Ah, ah. Are you from Vene from from Colombia? Fark those uh, those drug dealing drug dealing Marxist revolution. <laughs> Sorry? I know they do they don't do this. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but uh, Poppy is a symbol. <laughs> You know that I'm the only idiot of my generation that I know who has never even tried a drug, not even a very soft drug and so on. And I love this so much because regularly some pseudo clinicians attack me claiming that it's obvious from all my gestures that I must be on cocaine or whatever. And uh, I, did I tell you, you know the story why I never take drugs? Because of my inner Stalinism. Like, my idea is you take drugs, you get kind, uh, you want to dance, all the world is a flower, and then the enemy attacks and you are not ready. I'm totally fanatical here. Okay, but let's go on. So, uh, today it is more, I hope you will be able to follow it somehow on what you, sir, the Popeye, the, the drug dealer guy, what you have provoked me into some more philosophy. I will begin with the, what I already hinted at yesterday. For Lacan, for all this stuff about, uh, 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 about the center subject, uh, subject is caused by the signifying chain and so on, but it's not as simple as that. If you read Lacan closely, he says some things which sound almost, almost Hegelian, some kind of, for example, the late Lacan, he says somewhere that the subject is ultimately a cause of itself. He, of course, doesn't mean it in a naive Fichte and idealist way, although Fichte himself, again, doesn't mean it this way. But there is a certain structure which I will try to illustrate with two totally stupid, well-known, simple movie clips. What characterizes subjectivity? And it's interesting how, I think I developed this in, my, in the long chapter on, on brain sciences in my Parallax View book, is even they, the most positivist, but not stupid, intelligent uh, uh, cognitive scientist, admitted that for having the effect of subjectivity, a certain short circuit should occur. That in the causal chain, you have cause-effect, but then you have a paradoxical cause, which is nothing but a retroactive effect of its own effects. And here, failure intervenes. And it's this circularity which is for Lacan defining of subjectivity. What is a subject? Subject is something, as we know for Lacan, a signifier, representable. So subject is represented, or let's put it in a totally naive way, pre-Lacanian. You are a subject, you want to articulate creatively what you are, express yourself, you fail. And this failure is subject. So subject, you, you see this closed circuit, subject is the outcome of its own failure to be subject. Now I will try to explain this through two, three examples. The one is my favorite line from, uh, from uh, Hannibal Lecter novels. I think it's even from the last one, which I think is the worst one. 
for this very reason that I was talking about the last one, Hannibal Rising, I think. I mean, it's, he wrote it, the author Thomas Harris, just for money and so on. It basically was just a treatment to make a movie. But there is one nice phrase, I think, it is in this novel. Some psychiatrists try to analyze Hannibal's monstrosity. They try to depict the unfortunate circumstances, traumas. And then uh, there is a wonderful line in the novel claiming that it's wrong to ask what happened to him. The, the, the line is, nothing happened to him, he happened to the world. You know, this is a subject. Of course, Things happen to you, traumas and so on. But nothing is objectively a trauma. It's always a circle. You have a cause. Object A, a trauma is a cause. But this cause is always circular, is posited by the subject. Now, sorry, I almost wanted, but I still, I'm becoming a feminist uh, if you were not to be a woman but a man, I would have said, where is my slave, and so on, but sorry. I, uh, okay, the first, uh, the man who knew too much. Just look attentively at this very stupid one-minute scene from second version of the man who knew too much, Hitchcock, the guy, you know, whose uh, son is kidnapped, is misunderstands some news and thinks that in uh, Ambrose Chapel, a taxidermist, is looking for here that that's where they held his son. And he just is perplexed. Is there something wrong here? but give me a minute, will be uh, Superman. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, it's an extremely simple point. I hope you got it. He walks along the street, James Stewart, and he is looking for what we call that the Hitchcockian point of gaze. Some weird moment that sticks out and so on. But you get the point. What is the real eccentric point that sticks out? He himself. He's the strange element. You know, he's looking for the strange element in the picture, but ultimately he is the one. 
And this short circuit defines subjectivity. Uh, the, now I will show you another clip, even more ridiculous, but I think it works. Let's just do it, because it causes me such anxiety if something will not function. So that I it's from Superman 1, uh, when Superman arrives too late and his girlfriend is killed and then, okay, you probably know what he will do. Sorry for this nonsense, but uh, I wanted to give a very simple reading of this movie. Of course, what this scene depicts is nonsense physically, empirically. But this is the best natural embodiment of what thinking means. Uh, in thinking, you do exactly this. In thinking, you change the past. In thinking, you can do this. Not really going back and saving, but totally rereading it. You are literally changing the past in thinking. Because the past is not just what really happened, but the way we structure symbolically the past. And that's what I wanted to tell you, that this short circuit of changing the past, not, of course, at the level of facts, but at, and again, I will be making a little bit of cheap propaganda, in chapter, I, in my new book, Disparities, I don't have already mentioned this, I, maybe I mentioned the book, but this that I consider two chapters a little bit outstanding, worthy of reading. Uh, one is the third chapter, where I go in detail 
into polemics, probably I'm even afraid to think what will happen, how I will be attacked, and so on. Uh, a detailed debate with Robert Brandoms, which is available online, reading of phenomenology of spirit, which is, I think, a beautiful, in the sense of very consequent, the guy is not an idiot, reading, but I think it's a totally wrong, full domestication of Hegel. All the radical cut of Hegel disappears and Hegel becomes a kind of Habermasian avant la lettre, preaching some kind of unconstrained communication, mutual recognition, and so on and so on. The second chapter that is worth reading, I think, is the, the eighth one before the last, where I go into this, what I call negative theology, and the title I like is, you know, of the chapter, like, is God unconscious, stupid, evil, or... and. I, there I introduce, but I already talked widely about it here, the notion of uh, the notion of counterfactuals. How things are what they are, you cannot change that. What you can change is the counterfactual network against the background of which a thing is what it is or was what it was. I'm sorry to repeat a joke, but just to make it clear, which I think I already used in this room, I would say maybe not ten times, but five, six times, you know, oh my god, I'm afraid to say, that scene from uh, Ninochka, you know, a joke told in Ninochka, uh, a guy goes to a cafeteria, can I have coffee without cream? The waiter says, uh, sorry, we have no cream, we only have milk, so I can only give you coffee without milk. And it's a deeply Hegelian correct joke. The point is that the coffee is the same in both time. You will say, oh, it's coffee, it's coffee, it's just coffee. No, but coffee which is just coffee is not the same as coffee without cream, it's not the same as coffee without milk. And that we can change. For example, if you... Let me give you a simple historical example. Something happened, happened, which was very bad for you, a big defeat. And you think it was predestined, like there was no choice, it had to happen. Wouldn't it change all your perspective if you retroactively discovered that you blew it up, that it would have been very easy for you to prevent it? Or to put it in the terms of that joke, in this way, a coffee which is just coffee, the catastrophe, would be changed into a coffee without milk. Which means there could have been milk, but not. In this sense, again, we can change the past. But also in the, in the opposite direction. You think you have a, you think, uh, you have a choice, but retroactively you discover you didn't really have a choice. And uh, uh, here again, connecting to what Frank will talk about, I think that we should precisely reverse the usual wisdom, which is, while we are engaged in some activity, we think we have a choice. You can do this or that, but retroactively, from a historical perspective, we discover that we really didn't have a choice. For example, this would be a typical 
anti-communist critical reading of October Revolution. Those idiots acting at that time thought, but my God, we blew it up, we should liquidate Stalin early enough, whatever, as if there were alternatives, but as wise reactionaries like to point out, now retroactively when we see the entire image, it is clear that there had to be Stalinism. That it was a necessary outcome. I don't agree with this, just to give you a certain logic. The idea is, again, afterwards you see there was not a choice. I claim that a much more dialectical view would have been exactly the opposite one. That while you are engaged in something, you just act and react following a certain necessity. My God, to survive, I have to do this, I have to do that. And that precisely a proper dialectical view is not to dispel this illusion of freedom and to demonstrate how oh, it has had to happen, but to bring out all the possibilities, all, again, the counterfactuals that were there, but while you were caught into action, you, uh, you missed them. This is also all connected with the topic of predestination and so on and so on. Okay, we don't have time to go, to go into this now, because now I will go into what I promised you. Uh, I will begin with a short reflection on, and please, again, more than ever, I mean it this time. Interrupt me if anything is not clear. I will simply try to articulate my answer in very simple terms to the basic problem, which is a common sense problem, but a naive question, but I think it's crucial. It deserves an answer. Why do we, by we I mean vaguely, let's call it Lacanians, people who are engaged with psychoanalysis, why do we deal with philosophy? Precisely what you asked me before. Is this a secondary application? Is there a necessary link? Because again, as you know, we get regularly attacked from both sides. A standard philosophical argument is the transcendental one, which means you find it in Habermas, in Heidegger already in a different way. The idea is that in spite of all restraints, qualifications, psychoanalysis is simply an ontic-specific empirical procedure dealing with a very specific phenomenon, psychic troubles. Okay, it provides a certain image of human psyche, but as such, not only it cannot have any direct philosophical relevance, but it even always already has to rely on a certain philosophical pre-understanding. For example, don't underestimate this logic. It has a certain imminent necessity in it. For example, isn't it true that when Freud analyzed the psyche, he had to rely on a certain set of notion, preconception of causes, effects, and so on? Studies are written on how Freudian theory of libido, libido 
relies on this mechanistic notion of energy, conservation of energy, and so on and so on. So this is the classical philosophical argument against the autonomy of sciences. That, for example, even quantum physics, to do its job, it has already to presuppose a certain conceptual network. And you cannot be a radical empiricist and say, no, 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 it's through studying, doing its experiments, exploring its matter, that it discovers new notions of uh, causality and so on and so on. It does, but nonetheless, in its basic approach to reality, it has already to rely on certain concepts of what is causality and so on and so on, and you cannot get out of this circle. You are never at a zero level where you just look at at uh, reality. So again, we have the philosophical reproach to psychoanalysis. It might be interesting, it might even have some secondary philosophical consequences, but mostly when philosophers recognize this, they take it in a very naive way. They claim, okay, what does psychoanalysis prove? That we are not just pure rational beings, you know, that stupid metaphor that I think should be prohibited uh, uh, of cow, the iceberg and the unconscious is the bigger part of the iceberg that we don't see, we see just the ego and so on. But then every philosopher will tell you what's so new about it. You have long tradition in the 19th century of irrationalism, from late Schelling, Schopenhauer, even the term unbewusste, wasn't it? Who was that idiot? Uh, no, Hartmann, or who, who wrote a big book on unconscious in the middle of Hartmann? Yeah, on 19th century. So again, well before, before Freud, you have a wide reflection on how, you know, human being, our reason is just a puppet of some unconscious drives and so on and so on. So you can show although I totally reject it, but it's easy to show in an imminent philosophical way that for Freud to do his job, many things already had to happen in our basic pre-understanding of what is reality. Certain notion of irrationality, of the limitation of our reason, and so on and so on, all that. So, uh, Lacan, this is one target of psychoanalysis, that it's not simply strong enough. It may be interesting, but it has to rely on certain philosophical presuppositions, preconceptions, that it cannot ground out of itself. Then we have the opposite reproach from some Lacanians, clinicians, that the only, the real in psychoanalysis, the only real is clinic, patients, and so on. And that what we are doing, by we I mean people who are not clinicians, we are simply ultimately playing cultural games, applying psychoanalysis, and so on and so on. But these are only after effects, uh, cultural games may be an interesting thing, but irrelevant if it's not directly grounded in clinical experience. Against both this, I'm sorry, 
that my Stalinism will explode again. This right-wing and left-wing deviation, I think that that the correct uh, Stalin, uh, Stalinist Lacanians, my God, means that from the Lacanian standpoint, Lacan's axiom, il n'y a pas de rapport sexuel, there is no sexual relationship, is not an axiom which only underlies human sexuality determining it as fundamentally antagonistic. And incidentally, even here, Lacan is often misread. Even Jacqueline Miller sometimes, I think, gets lost. For example, when he says that il n'y a pas de rapport sexuel can also be read as that they are out of sync, the two sexes. That, for example, uh, uh, it's once he even uses this, for me, very vulgar, totally inappropriate metaphor, that like masculine sex is like a key but you don't ever find the find what do you trust the key into lock how do you call keyhole yes the the keyhole never fits it which for me it's a little bit too vulgar to to go and because I think I think it's totally wrong you know as proper Lacanians demonstrate this reading of the two sexes is always in a permanent conflict, never harmony, and so on and so on. Uh, this is not at all what Lacan means. This, to use the horrible, terrifyingly bad bestseller, men are from, uh, men are from Mars, women are from Venus. This is, no, the whole point of Lacan is not that we have the two sexes as constituted and then they always miss each other and so on, but that each of the two sexes cannot be constituted in itself. Woman cannot be a woman, man cannot be a woman. The, the, the gap, the impossibility is not between the two sexes, but it's immanent, inherent in each of the sexes. So again, uh, Lacan's there is no sexual relationship is an axiom with radical ontological implication an axiom which posits the antagonistic incomplete, flawed, whatever character of reality itself the impossibility to grasp it as a whole and subjectivity can only arise in a reality which is ontologically incomplete, traversed by an impossibility. This also means for Lacan, I will try to demonstrate this, now I'm just uh, positing the axioms, that subject is immanently constitutively sexed. It's not enough to say that subject emerges when substance is non-all, antagonistic, inconsistent, the mediating term is here sexuality. In order to have subject, the antagonism, impossibility, that cuts across reality has to acquire a form of sexuality, of the impossibility of the sexual, uh, uh, of the sexual uh, relationship. So, how do I, how do I? Uh, uh, develop this. What do I mean by this? Uh, let's uh, begin with Kant, from Kant to Hegel. Why is for Lacan Kant at the beginning of it all? I'm of course here relying on the path-breaking 
study and it's very strange how totally ignored it is by John Kobjack, The Euthanasia of Reason, which is typical how I organized in publishing the book The Not To by Lorenzo Chiesa, who is also recently appeared by MIT, who is also a polemic by me and so on. Uh, uh, he, he mentions a little bit Alenka Zupancic, but it's so strange. It's a book which is all about Lacan's formula of sexuation and John Kobjack, I think it's not even mentioned there. It's in a very weird way how her text, which is for me one of the absolute great texts, is ignored. So let me do, let me try to develop this. In the predominant perception, Kant is perceived as someone who openly admitted the failure of general ontology, an ontology which aims at grasping the whole of reality. This is Kant's big revolution. You know, if you know a little bit of Kant, we don't have time to go into details now, Kant's basic hypothesis is that, axiom even, that when our mind tries to grasp all of reality, not just limited experience that we have, temporal experience, but if we try to extrapolate from what we see here, from what we can test, how all of reality is structured, we not only fail, but we get caught into what Kant calls antinomies. And there is no primitive Hegelian dialectics in it. It's not that it's this and that, let's do a synthesis. For Kant, these are radical antinomies in the sense of, like, is there a free will or is all of reality totally determined by natural laws? Kant's position is a radical antinomy. We can logically prove with impeccable reasoning both versions. And then, I will not give, I mean, just Google Kant's concepts or whatever, Kant lexicon, you get this explained in a simple way, better than I can emphasize, how uh, uh, all the big, like, is, does the world, the universe, reality that in which we dwell, does it have a temporal beginning or a limit in space or not? Again, Kant's point is, the moment we overstep our empirical experience and try to think reality as totality, as an all, we necessarily get caught into contradictions. And all other, so freedom of the will, uh, uh, also the elements like, is reality divisible ad infinitum, or do we arrive at some minimal parts, atoms, Again, Kant's point is antinomy. Uh, uh, now comes, I'm just trying to reconstruct for you, this will not be proofs, the, the, the reasoning that's behind uh, what I perceive as philosophical relevance of psychoanalysis. Uh, so we have this Kantian situation, antinomies. Kant distinguishes two types of antinomies, so-called mathematical antinomies, which are the antinomies of, uh, of uh, quantitative antinomies when we are dealing with uh, too much excessive quanti quantities, quantities which are beyond our perception, and so-called 
qualitative or dynamic antinomies, which are concerned with qualitative difference, like, I don't know, is there a free will, is there God, or whatever. Uh, and uh, the shock of John Cobject was to discover that these two antinomies, quantitative antinomies, dynamic antinomies, and mathematical antinomies, exactly fit, and it's shocking that Lacan never writes this, was not afraid, sorry, was not aware of it, exactly fit Lacan's formulas of sexuation. In other words, what are, for Kant, mathematical antinomies? All or non-all is every, uh, are structured like what Lacan calls the deadlock, antagonism of feminine sexuality, what Kant calls dynamic antinomies, which are structured exactly like what Lacan calls masculine antagonism, which is universality and its constitutive exception, and so on, and so on. Uh, so that's, again, that's the big breakthrough of John Cobject, just to establish this link, that exact, that Kant was struggling for years, if you look seminars which, uh, uh, to seminars which come before Encore, before the 20, he was struggling for years trying to formulate precisely this formula of sequation, but what he arrived at the end is exactly Kant's antinomies of pure reason, which is why in my new book that I'm just finishing, there is a chapter of antinomies of pure sexuation, because this is what Lacan is doing. Okay, so uh, uh, what, uh, what's then the problem with Kant? Here, I think, what is crucial is to accomplish a passage from Kant to Hegel. Because Kant, for Kant, the ultimate deadlock is an epistemological one concerning knowledge. Antinomies are for Kant just antinomies of our knowledge. Kant posits a reality in itself which cannot be antinomic. Things are what they are out there, but we cannot get to know them. We, uh, when we try to understand all of it, we get with our limited human mind, we get necessarily caught into antinomies, which is for Kant a proof that reality is unknowable to us. And things get here with regard to ethics incredibly interesting, because then Kant asks the question, I often quoted this passage, he asks the question, my God, how time is running, I hate life. He asks the question in his... Uh, critique of practical reason, but why? Why did God create the world in such a stupid way that we cannot get to know external reality the way it really is? And Kant gives an extremely radical, interesting answer for ethical reasons. If we were to be able to know how reality really is, ethics would not have been possible. Because we would simply know how things are, and if there is God, we would act ethically, but not really. Because for Kant, as you know, a real ethical act is when you do it just for the sake of duty. 
But if we were to know reality, then we would have known. If I act well, I will be maybe uh, not punished, but rewarded by... And so acting ethically would really become, would simply become a matter of calculation. I do... I act ethically because I know I will be punished in my afterlife. So, again, but let's go a step further here to see all the shocking dimensions. So, Kant remains antinomist at the epistemological level. As Hegel puts it so nicely, Kant shows too much tenderness for the, for the things, for reality. If, for Kant, if there is an antinomy, it means we don't know how things really are. Antinomies are always a sign of the limitation of our reason. In other words, to return, if you can prove that the universe is at the same time uh, illimited and finite, or if you can prove that there is universal determinism, but at the same time there is free will, this means that simply there is something wrong in your logic. Wrong in the sense that uh, in the sense that it doesn't fit reality, that we are unable to understand the way things really are. Now, the greatness of Kant here, he is very radical, is that for him, this is not just a limitation of certain class, epoch, whatever, but antinomies are, for Kant, constitutive of human reason as such. Now, the move from Kant to Hegel is a very radical one. It's not a return to naive ontology, like, no, no, we can get to know the way things really are in themselves. Hegel's gesture is a very crazy, radical one. And that's why, incidentally, I don't like, uh, although it's beautifully written, Brandom's analysis, because I think his entire effort is to domesticate Hegel. To, he takes Hegel's most daring paradoxical statements and domesticates them. It's really as if showing, don't be afraid, Hegel is not really such a bad guy, we can read it as... I think this is even the subtitle of the first subchapter, I think, that, that how... Uh, in defense of Hegel's madness, you know. Like, you have all these crazy statements in Hegel... Uh, not necessary to repeat them, and Brandom's efforts to say, don't worry, we can translate all that into our ordinary language, and we can so, but, okay, Hegel's view, I'm sorry if I will repeat old stuff here, I will repeat two old stories, each of them I already repeated in this room again, this once maybe even ten times, but, uh, but just to make it clear, because now I'm dealing with really the very focus of what I'm trying to do. Hegel's move is not simply to claim, no, we can move over Kant and no reality. Hegel's claim is much more radical one. It's that the antinomy, which for Kant, in Kant's view, prevents our contact with reality, is the very point where we can touch the real outside. Let me give you two examples that I used the first one 15 times, I would say, in my books, but it's so clear. I'm sorry if many of you know it. This would be a clear-cut case. Adorno, in his text on notion of society, I think, claims, but let's forget about the example, think about the logic. He claims how any notion of society in our world 
oscillates between, in sociology he means Adorno, between the two extremes. Either we are individualists and try to develop how society emerges as a spectra objectified reified phantom out of concrete interaction of individuals. Or we are more Durkheim, Durkheimian organicists and we try to develop how society comes first as objective field of social interactions and how individuals emerge in a specific epoch of social life out. So either you are individualist or you are, how should I call it, organicist, holist. And Adorno first radicalizes this into an antinomy. He says, there is no synthesis here. You know, Adorno is here nonetheless bright. He's totally opposed to this pseudo-dialectical idea. No, this is one extreme, there is another extreme. But what about a dialectical interaction where there is society, but nonetheless this society as objective field involves individuals or whatever. He doesn't buy this bullshit. He says the antinomy is irreducible. There is no way to include two extremes, individualism and uh, 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 holism, into a kind of a global view where each of them would have its place. No. His idea is, no, we, will, we always fail to construct a unified notion of society. We always get caught into an antinomy. But and it's so simple, I'm sorry if you know it. Adorno's solution is, you know what, it is... But this very antinomy is the basic feature of today's society. Today's modern society is characterized, just think about our world. On the one hand, we are individualized again and again. The whole ideological machinery individualizes us. Because it's part of the moralization of the existing social order. For example, I think I often use this example, take uh, ecology. How? How does ideology work in ecology? To tell you, don't criticize society. Think about your part in it. Did you recycle all the Coke cans? Did you put aside... You know, this false superego individualization. Also, did you notice how the more our society is global and impenetrable, chaotic in its economic processes and so on, the more we are addressed as radically responsible, like we are condemned to freedom, this is all the second modernity, Giddens stuff, and so on, you know, new chances of freedom, you know the story, I'm often repeating it, no? Like, you complain, I cannot give, even get a permanent job, and then you are immediately accused of being afraid of freedom. Can't you see that the inability to get a permanent job means that a new freedom is open to you, a freedom to reinvent yourself creatively every year again and again? So intelligent sociologists get this out. This extreme hedonist individualism today is strictly the obverse of the fact that global social process or economic is becoming more and more totally impenetrable. Just think about 2008 crisis. Apart from some, there were some, 
leftist, but even some intelligent rightist economist, it was a mega shock for the majority. Nobody saw it coming. It's incredible how little, I, th- I really think, it's not an exaggeration that economists today, especially macroeconomists, are basically magicians. This is a return to magical thinking. I mean, they don't know what... I, I remember how I learned this Varoufakis invited me three years ago. Now probably he is too high. I appreciate him. I don't despise him. That's my bad joke. Before he became Varoufakis, the media person, he invited me. He told me, why don't we write a book together on economy? I said, I told him, but listen, whatever I wrote about economy, I bluff. I don't have any idea of it. And Varoufakis answered, but yes, but do you think that we economists know it? We're doing, no, we're doing exactly the same. Nobody knows it. No. So again, uh, you see the beauty. Uh, uh, don't disappear. Soon you will have a duty. And now I will play Donald Trump. To where are you going to the toilet? Disgusting! What are you doing? You know, I mentioned this yesterday. Donald Trump. To you are my Hillary now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Let's go on. But you see the beauty of Adorno's solution. The very thing that appeared as a problem. My God. We get into an antinomy, becomes its own solution. Because this antinomy, this radical, never reconciled split into extreme individualism and impenetrable objectivity is the fundamental real feature of society today. This is the proper step from Kant to Hegel. Hegel does not resolve Kantian antinomies. There is no step further into a higher dialectical synthesis or whatever. He just reinterprets the obstacle, what appears as the obstacle as its own solution. Without getting this, you don't get anything in Hegel. For example, that's why Hegel is not a thinker of reconciliation in the thanks sense that things look back but then through some wonder they get reconciled no, it's a crucial passage I quoted already in my previous book Absolute Recoil where Hegel says that the reconciliation is always a retroactive movement the Hegelian reconciliation is not a Frank, if you are back now, if you want me to shake your hands, I cannot resist. Did you wash your hands afterwards so that I can... You see, the, no, when, uh, my formula is this one, when we fight for communism, there are no moralist limits or limits of bourgeois taste. We should go to the... Sorry, but let me go on. And then I will give you the most beautiful example, that I, which I repeat in just five, six of my books, but... Just to make a point and then conclude and give the word to Genosse Ruda. Uh, 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 that eternal example that I've written, you must even know the graph, just to, so that you get the point. You know, my favorite Levi-Strauss in uh, Structural Anthropology, Volume 1, Do Dual Organizations Exist? I think this is breathtaking. Levi-Strauss, don't dismiss him as an early stupid structuralist. He was a genius. It's such a simple story. I'm sorry if you know it, but let's again to get the point. He, uh, 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 he, he visited certain stupid tribe, I don't know where, uh, and he there asked them to draw the map of their village. 
And he noticed how he got from half of the tribe one image and from the other half another image. Some members of the tribe draw the image like this. Here in the center is the central temple and then houses in a circle around. The other half wrote a totally different image. It's as if cut, uh, divided by a line. The temple is here on the one side with some important houses, ordinarily small houses, huts on the other side. Now, of course, the question is, but there must be a real disposition of houses. How are the houses really disposed? And so what do you see when you hire a helicopter and take a photo from above? The result is neither of the two. Some mixture and so on. But then Levi-Strauss does something wonderful. He says that this very contradiction, half of the people see the houses like this, the other half like that, it's wrong to compare it with reality and to say, you see, they exaggerate in one sense, the others in another sense, but the real disposition of houses is somewhere in the middle. No, Levi-Strauss sees the element of truth about this tribe in this very caricature opposition, because he says, in a very beautiful analysis, he shows how this tribe was in the middle of passing from egalitarian pre-class society into already first forms of hierarchy. And then he demonstrated how those who were losing on the lower side perceived the class struggle. They gave the mapping where on the one side are the privileged priests and so on, we the poor suckers are on the other side. Of course, as is always the case, the, the, case, the rich, the new ruling class, perceived itself, of course, as we are the harmonious center, which, and so on, and so on. So, you see, Levi-Strauss then makes a wonderful point that it's wrong to ask about the two images, two maps, which is the true one. The truth about the tribe is the very antagonism of the two images. This tells you the truth. So, the very problem, the very antinomy, brings you close is gives you the so you, you got here the basic part. So again, let's go on. So to conclude briefly, uh, obviously we will have to do much more philosophy tomorrow. But I I promise you something. I will keep my word. You still have the the uh, emails of the guys here. I will do my usual. I will give you my usual word, which at least there I usually was not lying. No, I will send you tomorrow some files, so that that. What I will not be able to deliver here, you, will, you can get them if you want, the text. Because as always, you know, fuck you, I never prepare classes for you. I use the stuff from my new book, no? <laughs> so you can get it. Okay, let's go on. So uh, uh, that's then the idea of uh, Lacan, that in the same way that Hegel uh, draws the ontological consequences of Kantian antinomies, which means that it's not only that our epistemology, our knowledge of reality gets caught into antinomies, but it reproduces an antinomy which is in the very core of what is reality. 
reality is profoundly antinomic. And for Lacan, in this sense, uh, in this sense, sexual antagonism is the privileged way to get at this therein results, as you can see in Kant again, the ontological consequence of sexual antagonism. Sexuality is not just a distortion of us sexed beings, but a signal, an after effect of how reality itself is antagonistic. You know, this eternal problem, now I'm moving in a very general way, of uh, uh, what is reality? Is it, you know, all this antinomies in quantum physics, its particles, its waves, if this or that. The psychoanalytic ontology, as it were, would have been that. There is no ontology, there, there is no reality in the sense of one big reality which is just flat and then secondarily antinomies intervene. Reality in itself is radically antinomic. Antinomic in precisely the sense that philosophy, which wants to be traditional ontology, depicting all of reality with such fundament and so on, some fundament, always by definition fails. Which is why, that's my problem with Lacan's terminology, when he says, Je m'insurge contre la, I raise myself against philosophy. Well, fuck you, all the philosophy is doing this from Kant onward, you know. Like, Kant already refuses for what he is doing the term philosophy. He says it's just prolegomena, transcendental preparation of philosophy. Fichte, Schelling, in the same way. Hegel, he said, it's not philosophy, it's Wissenschaft, it's knowledge. Marx, Nietzsche, no philosopher after Kant wants to be a philosopher, except new this new ontology, new materialism now, and so on. It's quite incredible how philosophy after Kant, inclusive of Kant, is defined as anti-philosophy. In no way can you take Hegel as a positive ontologist. Hegel is not an ultra-rationalist who paints some rational structure harmonious of the universe. No. What Hegel does is just going from antinomy to antinomy, from a failure to a failure. But it's not just a limitation of our knowledge. The crazy thesis, again, is that the absolutely crucial moment here, again, is this passage from epistemology to ontology. You get caught into an epistemological deadlock. And then the properly dialectical solution is not to overcome the deadlock, but to demonstrate how what you thought separates you from reality, this deadlock, is precisely what includes you into the very, what includes you into the very core of reality. And as I repeatedly try to develop in my books, this and only this is the reason why I consider myself a, of course, a, 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 an atheist Christian. Because as Chesterton put it so nicely, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, in every religion you have atheists. Every religion admits there are people who don't believe in God. Maybe he is wrong, but I'm just reporting to his position. Uh, only in Christianity, 
We have that famous Eli Eli Lama Sabaktami, Father, why have you forsaken me? We have, for a brief moment, God himself who no longer believes in God. You know, this is the Christian solution in a traditional religion. Now you will see the link with what I was saying. In a traditional religion, we are abandoned by God. And then, through some, I don't know, God's grace or from our side, hard work, we try to fill in the gap. Christian message is totally different. It is, yes, we are abandoned by God. But at that very point, when we feel totally abandoned by God, we identify with Christ on the cross, who feels abandoned. The very abandonment by God, or being abandoned by God, is just an effect of God being radically separated from itself. Okay. I will be honest. I hope this was not too confused. Tomorrow I will draw some more consequences from this and then I will do something totally crazy. I hope you will swallow it. I will try to give you a simple musical example of this logic of void supplement. I will follow the dialectic, very simple, of background and melody Passel Bell Canon. Then what happens in Mozart? You know how something that for Passel Bell was already a musical piece in itself, all of a sudden with Mozart starts to function as a background and needs to be filled in with melody. And then I will go into this gap which you wonderfully feel in Mozart between main melodic one line which is in Mozart always thwarted, blocked, but the beautiful effect is that's why at the end of a piece typically in Mozart, it's as if what was thwarted explodes in an unexpected excessive finale. While I will try to prove the ultimate origin of Kitsch is Beethoven. Because he goes into this full romantic horror of bringing the melody out to its full culmination. For example, one of the greatest pieces of musical kitsch for me, if you know it, is Beethoven's the most famous overture, Leonore, Leonore Dry, the third, Leonore III to Fidelio. No? It's kitsch, and then I will go, it's something so simple, I will try just to, I will shock you, to give you, now, uh, how do you call it, uh, a teaser for joy. My basic point will be, did you see, it's shitty movie, uh, the scene did you see You Only Live Twice, the first or fifth James Bond movie, the fifth? Okay, in Japan. There is a wedding scene there which perfectly encapsulates this typical Western moment of first you have this restrained pseudo-oriental music and then you have big release, full melody with violins and so on. And it's, I think, a wonderful, the most colonialist moment in music that I can imagine. And I will, so I hope you will be able to swallow that. But now, enough of this. Deutschland nimmt über. Germany takes over now. Please. Okay, is it okay if you are like this? Okay. Sorry.
So first of all, uh, I want to thank Slavoj for making this possible and for the um, endorsement which started years ago and I'm sure he's from the very beginning regretted it. I I wanted to say that. Um, Also, uh, yesterday you proposed an honorary honorary membership, maybe not a job, but an honorary membership in the Slovenian gang. I I heard that uh, my last name in Slovene has something to do with mining, so maybe there's a proletarian position open. I would apply. Um, and thanks for bearing uh, with me uh, as a committed fatalist, and I want to argue that you should be too. I expect this is a huge disappointment already, so, I mean, um, it can only get better. So, um, so I was uh, supposed to say something about uh, my new book, which is called Abolishing Freedom, a plea for a contemporary use of fatalism, and it's a book on freedom, but... Why give it such an unappealing title, Abolishing Freedom, does not sound very charming or even more so like a very defensible program at all. The basic argumentative move of the book is fourfold. First, it starts from a very trivial observation, namely that the signifier freedom does not at all necessarily and always mean what it seems to say. To put it trivially, not every time someone refers to freedom for justifying what he or she does, one actually encounters freedom in a meaningful, uh, meaningful way in, a, in, in the consequence. Let me give you a stupid empirical, yet quite, I think, telling, uh, telling recent example, namely what happened more or less recently with the American company Virgin Enterprise. They claimed that having a prescribed number of vacation days, annual vacation days, is ultimately somehow unproductive and very re- repressive for their employees. They themselves should freely decide how often they think they need a leave, freeing them from all external constraints, authoritarian and pre-given rules, and so forth. This was also presented as being very much up-to-date. I quote their website. First time I ever do this. Um, Flexible working has revolutionized how, where, and when we all do our jobs. So if working 9 to 5 no longer applies, then why should strict annual leave vacation policies? Unquote. And one, could, one, one should note that this uh, would also work as a slogan, uh, slogan for working from 9 to 9 and abolishing vacation altogether, I think. But nonetheless, of course, there was a condition that came along with this project. Holidays can only be taken when the work is done. And the employees are considered to be the ones to know when that is. When that happened, uh, what then happened was that the number... Uh, of taking uh, holidays effectively got lower than ever in the company's history. They emerged, there emerged immediately an internal super-egoic pressure of self-control which proved more oppressive than the prior external regulations. This was an effect of the em- uh, employees supposedly freely deciding about when and how much holiday they need, and the effect was that the competition among the employees kicked in even harsher when external administration was suspended. So freedom, their freedom to decide about their own vacation, did actually lead into, the, into even more de- uh, determination, which was even less to be influenced. One may also think of examples uh, analyzed and just uh, referred to by uh, our master, Slavoj Žižek. People these days, and if you work in a university, I mean, he just referred to that, you know what I'm talking about, do not find a long-term employment, and this is presented to them as a chance to explore ever new options, be creative, and uh, uh, things like that. Or think of what the conservatives in the, in the U.S. articulated as one argument against universal health insurance, the freedom of not being obliged to have a state-guaranteed one was presented as freedom from state control, etc., 
So the first intuition behind the book is that at least the signifier of freedom can function in a way that effectively leads to unfreedom or non-freedom. And this may lead to a particular form of what Alain Badiou calls disorientation. Disorientation because one, one may be all for freedom and effectively endorse something that has nothing to do with freedom whatsoever. But this is the starting question of the book. What if and what to do when the signifier freedom becomes a synonym of oppression, even though a perfidious one? Because how could one not be for freedom? Even against better insight, freedom is nothing anyone would like to give up, not even when it's de facto already gone. This is where its disorienting and, I think, oppressive quality becomes apparent. And it's a not very, let's say, attractive position to say that freedom as such is a, has an oppressive quality. I know that. And it also works somehow like the, because it works somehow like the holy cow of Western civilizations, maybe with democracy, and the prospect of criticizing it or even giving it up seems highly unattractive. But I think at least today it's not enough to constantly appeal to its true meaning, which is at the same time and by far not undisputed, I guess. Already Marx noted that freedom is a crucial component of the functioning and dynamics of capital. Just think of what he, what he writes in Capital namely that within the Eden, that is the legal framework on which capitalist forms of production rely, I quote, they alone rule freedom, equality, property, and Bentham. Freedom is for Marx part of a series of signifiers which gains its ultimate consistency by adding to it another term uh, of a fundamental different quality, namely Bentham, the utilitarian philosopher, and this adding, this supplement, this suturing is crucial. It is his name on which the consistency of the series hinges and which starts to determine what the respective concepts de facto mean. Freedom then does in this context, for example, not only frame the free exchange between two equals, the laborer and the capitalist, the former freely selling his labor power, the latter freely buying it, and both are presented as if they are determined by their equally free wills only, but Marx, by adding Bentham to the series of concepts, also marks that their free will is determined by that which Bentham stands for, pure calculating self-interest. This is what holds together in a certain sense and determines the series of terms. So in this example, it seems one is dealing with an actualization of freedom, but ultimately the, this only obfuscates the fact that there is a straightforward determination that models and frames the very way in which freedom is actualized, and also what can count as an actualization of freedom. So effectively, it's not freedom that Marx is talking about, right? So when and if freedom effectively functions as a disoriented instrument of oppression, freedom is not something that one should endorse no matter what. This is the starting reflection somehow. But that this seems so difficult, if not impossible to do, shows that it's a peculiar, I would say, contemporary fetish, something that one should better not touch. So my question was how to problematize an oppressive function of something you better should not touch. This leads me to my second point, and this is, if you wish, another trivial observation, namely that one can find in the history of modern rationalist philosophy, maybe even before, but beginning at least with Descartes and going through thinkers like Kant, Hegel, Marx, and others, a fundamental problematization of misleading and inconsistent notions of freedom. And the one that stands out the one that is sort of the most problematic and at the ground of most, if not all, misconception is the understanding of freedom in terms of and as being a capacity. When freedom is taken to be a capacity that we as human beings or whatever the agent is, 
have, it is usually taken to be a capacity to choose, or it's fashionable to say these days to determine oneself, which means to choose what one thinks, what one wants to do and be. But this is ultimately, and today a version of this is called inferentialism, is to choose A or B, Coke or Diet Coke. But if one thinks that freedom is a capacity, this has conceptual implications. The first is that if freedom is taken to be a capacity, one cannot but assume that there is someone, human beings in general or whoever, who has this capacity. This means that freedom is a kind of possession, substantially determining the agent. We are naturally free creatures because we have the capacity to choose or to determine ourselves and our lives. Understanding freedom in terms of a capacity thus leads to the assumption that we are free by nature. And thus, it has also a certain naturalizing effect on freedom, even if we do not even though we do not need to give naturalistic explanations, but right, it's, if it's in our nature, there's a naturalizing uh, aspect to this account. But if freedom is considered to be a capacity that we have, this can have quite, I think, a calming and assuring effect. If you always already are free because you're endowed with this capacity, you may need to defend it, but you do not need to strive for it. One feels free even in situations in which one is not free. So, say when you freely decide that working for Virgin is so much fun that you simply do not need to take time off. This is what Alexandre Korzhev uh, once called in commenting on uh, Hegel's discussion of the Stoic slave who feels free even when he's forced to work, the slave ideology. The slave ideology of freedom is a way that allows to avoid confronting the actual situation of unfreedom. Right? The slave constantly thinks, I'm free in my thoughts and stuff like that although he's uh, a slave in reality. It is to refer to Althusser's famous definition uh, of ideology, an imaginary relation to the real conditions of one's existence. He's free even though he's a slave. That's his own self-interpretation, the slaves. And Hegel criticizes the Stoic slave, to, to put it like that, slave menta uh, mentality precisely for allowing the slave to still assume that he's free, and thus for adapting, because of this ideology of freedom, to the situation by not fully assuming its reality. It's a way of escaping, confronting the real conditions of it, uh, his existence. But why does this work? This is, to my mind, a direct effect of identifying freedom with the capacity. For a capacity can, of course, be actualized or non-actualized, but it already has a certain kind of actuality, even when not actualized. We're able to eat, even when we're not eating, we're able to think, even when we're not thinking, if that ever occurs. To take freedom to be a capacity means to assume that there is an actuality and a reality of freedom before the becoming actual and real of freedom, an actual actuality of a potentiality or of a possibility. But here things, I, uh, I think, get problematic. For if freedom is taken to be already real and realized in the form of a capacity, one conflates the reality and actuality of freedom with its possibility, or more precisely, one conflates the actuality of a possibility, that is freedom as capacity, with the actuality of actuality, that is freedom realized. Or put differently, one conflates the existence of a choice, the having of a choice, so to speak, with the act of choosing. The mere existence of a choice is then taken to be already the realization or a realization of freedom, a realization of freedom that precedes any real realizations of freedom. And I think this redoubling is important. This leads to the weird conclusion that we're free even when we're not free. As long as I can choose, I'm free even when I do not choose because I always could. 
In the modern rationalist tradition of Western philosophy, this understanding, that's usually referred to as the liberum arbitrium indifferentiae, was frequently criticized for this very conflation of actuality and pot uh, possibility of freedom. Because if freedom is identified with such an indifferent capacity, with a capacity to indifferently choose between A and non-A, what happens is that one separates the concept of freedom from the concept of decision or resolve, from the becoming active of freedom. Freedom becomes identified with the existence of a choice from which any actual choice, any act of choosing, is spirited away, subtracted somehow. For Descartes, for example, this very understanding of freedom stands at the ground of all errors that I can make in judgment. That's Descartes' basically, basic claim. Why? Because as soon as I conceive of my freedom as, an al already realized, as already realized in the mere existence of a choice, I already made an error, namely an error in my understanding of freedom, conflating actuality, um, the actuality of possibility and the actuality of actuality. And this error will subsequently and consequentially never stop to determine whatever I infer from it, whatever I do or judge. Right? I make this basic error, and then somehow this is a determination I cannot get rid of. Because if I take freedom to be indifferently realized in either side of a given choice, the mere existence of the choice is enough, it's already a realization of freedom, the choice starts determining me. Because I do not only identify freedom with an indifferent capacity, but because I also become indifferent to the very realization of freedom. Right? Either choice is okay. You don't have Diet Coke, I take the Coke. In this way, this understanding of freedom becomes something like an erroneous transcendental of all my future choices and judgments. And one can clearly see why this is a problem of subtracting the act of choosing from the choice that freedom is supposed to be, why this problem is still prominent today as notions of resolve, decision, and so forth have quite... Uh, bad press, I think, and somehow smell of decisionism and all this stuff that one doesn't like. In any case, the history of Western rationalist philosophy presents a series of very fundamental criticisms of this idea of freedom that are mostly presented under the label of a critique of indifference, which is the Latin rendering of the Greek term adiaphora, which designates things that are in between, that are either X or non-X, or both at the same time. Stuff you don't care about, right? When you're indifferent about stuff that you don't care about. Um, that is, rationalist philosophy criticizes the idea of taking freedom to be an indifferent capacity to choose A or non-A and identifying the existence of this capacity, the existence of a choice, with the actuality of freedom. This is the target of the critique. You can find this not only in Descartes, but also, for example, in the very beginning of the critique of pure reason where Kant explicitly states that reason is a peculiar entity because on one side it cannot but behave like a small or little child constantly asking why, why, why and is never satisfied with whatever answer it gets and is thereby driven into what Kant calls the realm of principles. But that it is driven into this realm shows for Kant and you can find this literally I think on page two of the preface uh, to the first edition of the Critique of Pure Reason, that reason can never be indifferent to these questions. Reason cannot be indifferent. That's impossible. This is to say, reason cannot be indifferent and thus cannot be satisfied with the idea that things could be either way, A or non-A, etc. This is to say that Kant starts this whole project 
against what he refers to, also page two, preface, critique of pure reason, as the indifferentists who claim that after all failed attempts to establish a rational metaphysics, we should simply stop caring and not give a fuck about God, the order of the world, freedom, and all these difficult questions right, um, that we cannot answer anyhow. So Kant starts his whole project by trying to reject the idea that rational creatures could be defined by something that is indifferent, and this includes freedom. To give you one last paradigmatic example from the history of philosophy, there is a kind of anecdote or a thought experiment that is usually attributed to um, a guy called Johannes Buridan, um, a scholastic philosopher, actually, even though, to the best of my knowledge, he never used it. So I don't know how that happened. And it's mostly referred to under the name uh, Buridan's ass, not the body part, the animal. Uh, Buridan imagines an ass that is super hungry, and in equidistance from him, there are two bales of hay. But because the ass cannot decide for which bale to go, he starves to death. In a certain sense, um, the history of modern rationalist philosophy attacks what I would call the aesthetization, if that is a word, it's not a word, I know, but the aesthetization uh, of freedom uh, in this Buridanian sense, because in the end, and ultimately, it has a mortifying aspect uh, or effect on freedom. And its germ cells, the identification of freedom, with a capacity. So this leads me to my third uh, uh, point and my, my, <clears throat> my main argumentative threats of the book uh, and why I try to read and defend the history of modern philosophical rationalism as a consistent and increasingly getting worse elaboration of what I call a rationalist fatalism which, as I will explain in the end, just like very briefly, uh, has a, for me, very uh, uh, constitutively comic dimension. So I'm not a full-blown, I'm a full-blown fatalist, but a comic, comic one. You will see why. So why should fatalism be the answer of the problem that I try to depict? And if freedom is taken to be an always already, if freedom is taken to be an always already given capacity, freedom is simply considered to be a given. And modern rationalist philosophy is rationalist because it tries to overcome what Wilfried Sellers, of whom I'm otherwise not the biggest fan, once called the myth of the given. More specifically, modern rationalist philosophy constitutes itself as philosophy through the uh, attack on what I call, would call the myth of the givenness of freedom. The criticism of any mythic conception of freedom makes modern rationalism into rationalism. And in a sense, what I'm trying to do in the book is an attempt to mimic the history of uh, philosophy that Heidegger wrote, only that in my version it's not, not Plato is the truly bad guy, which keeps resurging, although <clears throat> he has been killed many times, uh, but somehow Aristotle, with whom to modify Heidegger, I think for the first time freedom came under the yoke of capacity. So I try to argue that modern rationalist philosophy, uh, philosophy somehow, in its essence, is constitutively anti-Aristotelian in this sense. But how to overcome the myth of the givenness of freedom via fatalism? I here take my cue from, again, one trivial observation, which at the same time went almost unnoticed, Slavoj just mentioned that briefly, by many readers, namely that all great modern thinkers of freedom, and in the book I discuss uh, Descartes, Kant, Hegel, and Freud, um, with a short prehistory concerning uh, Luther, but this, uh, Descartes, Kant, Hegel, and Freud are not only attempting to unfold a specific concept of freedom, but they all, <clears throat> all somehow, uh, somehow defend 
something like divine predestination. You find that even in Freud, um, who explicitly, explicitly claims several times that there is no such thing as psychic freedom. I think this is literally Freud, but only utter psychic determinism. Descartes, for example, writes explicitly that there is only one thing guiding him, that is God's predestined plan in a letter to Mersenne. And you find in Hegel the claim that, for example, the whole philosophy of history has no other job to do than to justify God's predestined plan. Right? I mean, how to, how to bring the, this together, that the thinkers of freedom are at the same time completely embracing and endorsing um, 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 predestination, a predetermined fate. And because I and, and, and why what I call fatalism is the assumption of this concept of fate. This is uh, the first element of it. So what I call fatalism is the claim that it's fully rationalist to assume a kind of always already predetermined fate, and I argue that this kind of fatalism is a precondition for unfolding a proper concept of freedom. So what you do not get in the book, if you ever, I don't know, someone forces you to read it, um, is a concept of freedom, not at all. But what you get in the book is what the modern rationalist tradition considers to be the precondition for overcoming the myth of the givenness of freedom. And this is directly linked to the assumption of specific form of fatalism, embracing a specific form of fate. And I'm going to say just like a quick word about that. The argument I'm developing resembles to some extent what the French theorist of catastrophe Jean-Pierre Dupuy calls enlightened doomsaying. Dupuis argues uh, that what might seem impossible today, namely a final, for example, ecological catastrophe that would end the present order of things, is nonetheless absolutely certain if we continue the way we do. Assuming that this catastrophe is our destiny, and fully assuming it now, might then retroactively change the conditions of possibility of this very destiny. It may retroactively make it possible to change what cannot uh, but appear to us as our fate. Otherwise, if we don't assume that, that's Dupuy, we keep postponing and postponing until a tipping point is reached and the catastrophe is therefore, in this sense, already here because we assume that this way of handling things will not bring about the catastrophe. So the catastrophe is not to see that our way of treating things is the catastrophe. Right? Right? We're generating the catastrophe and the super catastrophe is that we don't understand that we are the ones generating and not uh, preventing the catastrophe. My argument also bears a strong similarity to what uh, uh, Slavoj Žižek calls the inversion of the apocalypse, a maneuver that does not take the apocalypse as something that, will, uh, that we will have to face in the future, but as something that already took place. So in a sense, what I try to suggest, and I will briefly now tell you why I think that this is a consistent and rationalist position, is that one has to start from the assumption that the worst always already happened. I mean, that's my, my minimal formula. It will not happen in the future. <clears throat> it already happened in the past, and precisely by creating a different relation, as Slava just indicated, to the past, this might generate a difference even in and for the future. In short, I argue in the book that the history of modern rationalism can be read as a series of articulations of this very idea, that the worst always already happened, um, that is in a sense as a history of worsening. So I begin with Descartes, who somehow makes this, uh, makes this claim, and the worst of them all is uh, Hegel, but then comes Freud. One can make a preliminary sense of this, I think, by referring to the well-known saying often attributed to Frederick Jameson, although, although he denies that he ever said that, I don't know, uh, namely <clears throat> that people today can more easily imagine the uh, earth being hit by a comet 
by a comet from outer space, then a radical transformation of the fundamental social, political, but also economic coordinates of our daily life. We somehow know, as Jameson suggests, that we believe that it's rather a comet comets coming from the outside than anything happening on the inside that might possibly induce a transformation of the way things are. But, as this saying implies, we act as if we do not know that we know this. That is, we still act as if we hope for the world to change from within, although we know that we believe that it's only, right, we only believe in the comet and nuts in fundamental uh, transformation here. So what I aim to do in the book is to highlight a crucial aspect of the history of uh, rationalism that served as a means to assume in a certain sense, to assume the knowledge that one does not know one has. And you may know that this is the minimal definition that Freud gives of the unconscious, right? I mean, the uh, unconscious is a knowledge that you don't know that you have. In short, it tries, what I try to do is to imagine the very comet that may devastate the Earth the Earth, not by imagining it, uh, it as coming from outer space sometime in the future, but as an event that, although unacknowledged, has already occurred. With such an inversion, that is the central idea, one may then be able not only uh, to imagine other forms of transformation, but also another form of freedom. Yet to do so, I think, it, this is why it's a precondition, the first preliminary step is to abolish freedom in any mythic sense of the term, in any kind, any kind of givenness and embrace, to do so, one needs to embrace catastrophe, disaster, and the apocalypse. So it's, yeah. But how to do this? And why should precisely fatalism, the assumption of the worst fate imaginable, not just be another version of the myth of the given that I said needs to be overcome, not to fall into a problematic conception of freedom? I said that the pro problem with the mythic conception of freedom freedom as capacity, is that it leads me to act and think as if I were free, although I'm not, because my specific understanding of freedom starts to determine me. The fatalist move is now to invert this, this idea. Freedom can only be thought if one assumes that it is constitutively always already lost, right? um, that it's not something that we have or that is a given. It argues... <clears throat> um, this is what one can find in Descartes, that a crucial precondition for conceiving of freedom in an adequate way is to act as if one was not already, always already free. Why should this be any better? Let me briefly refer to Descartes' last published book, The Passions of the Soul, which unfortunately is rarely read today to the best of my knowledge, as it is in this very book that Descartes argues for this peculiar and still quite astoundingly intricate idea of the pineal gland connecting as a material connection, soul and body. To counter the confusion that is implied in the misconception of freedom, Descartes in this book introduces the following conceptual strategy. I, I quote, We should reflect upon the fact that nothing can possibly happen other than as providence has determined from all eternity. Providence is, so to speak, a fate, une fatalité, or immutable necessity, which we must set against fortune, and for, for, for uh, Descartes, this is that we have the way of things in our hands or things just happen contingently. So we, we must set uh, fate, une fatalité, against fortune in order to expose the latter as a chimera which solely arises from an error of our intellect, the erroneous transcendental I referred to before. Descartes' point is here that a fatalist assumption is necessary to counter the wrong conception of freedom, but fatalism cannot simply be reduced to mechanic, uh, mechanistic determinism. Rather, it is characterized 
as a belief in divine providence and immutable necessity. At first sight, Descartes' claim may seem to be paradoxical. If we seek to avoid given determinations of freedom, how can the remedy lie in assuming that everything is predetermined by God's providence? Right? Seems like we're simply replacing the one for the other. Believing in fortune, I emphasize in good luck, in a sense, I emphasize the possibility or the may-being to speak with Meyasu, of things that are out of my hands. I may win the lottery and I may not. I do not have the knowledge of how things may go, which is one of the reasons why they are out of my hands. The outcome depends on causes external to that of my will, causes of which I do not know enough. Therefore, attaining knowledge about the outcome depends on time, most precisely, on the future. The future will show if my desire for the millions I can win in the lottery will be satisfied. This conceptual concatenation turns the future into something that I cannot predict in advance, and that is therefore beyond the scope of my action and will. Right? The future will tell if I bought uh, the lottery ticket and, um, uh, for a reason. One problem arises at this point, namely that I thereby attain for Descartes a weak concept of contingency. If things can go either way, uh, but the choice is not mine. I identify contingency with arbitrariness, uh, arbitrariness, such that the future outcomes of choices depend on good or bad luck. As soon as I do so, my will is determined neither by my knowledge nor by the rigidity of my judgments, but by an arbitrary outcome that is out of my hands. But a will that is determined arbitrarily is not free in its actions. The defense of immutable necessity, and so what Descartes tries to do is we should give up the idea of good or bad luck. The Passions of the Soul is so refreshing because he has a super brutal criticism of hope. He thinks it's one of the most reactionary effects ever invented. Okay, not fashionable, I see, but I mean, it's, it's interesting. Um, okay, the defense of uh, immutable necessity as a step to overcome this problematic concept of contingency, namely contingency as arbitrariness, that determines my will and with it the state of unfreedom that results from it. This defense, therefore, does not work simply by playing out one externality, one determination against another, but by emphasizing necessity against contingency, and now the catch, for the sake of unfolding a proper concept of contingency. Right? So Descartes, just like the defense of uh, predestination, is just like the first step to get to a point where I can think contingency proper. In order to achieve this goal, one has to shift the temporal focus from the future to an already determined and yet still determining past, a shift that is performed by way uh, of an appeal to divine providence. Cartesian fatalism thus counters the idea of an arbitrary future outcome that determines the will with the assumption of an always already necessarily determined past and thereby a fully determined future, as it seems. But, and here comes the catch, God's ditch predestined things in such a way that, A, it will never be, we will never be able to know how they're predetermined, and B, he predestined the way of things in an entirely free manner. God is another name in Descartes for freedom. Right? He is so free, he can just like alter the laws of the universe whenever he's in the mood and stuff like that. So, right, um, what appears to be, or what is strategically uh, uh, an attack on uh, um, a weak form of contingency leads to a strong form of contingency embodied by God's ultimate free will. Right? And the plan that he made up, and we can never know. That is to say, assuming divine pre uh, predestination, being a fatalist in this sense, prepares one for an unknowable co contingency, for a strong concept of contingency, that thereby one assumes to be absolutely necessary. 
But I do not only assume a position that is able to accept a fundamental necessity of contingency. This is the assumption of God's plan, as, for example, Mea Su would advocate, I think, but also a fundamental contingency of necessity. Why? To give you a trivially, uh, trivial and slightly, not even slightly, a romanticizing example at the end. If you want to fall in, you're not in love in this setting right now, right? You don't have a partner, but you want to fall in love. How do you prepare for that? Um, what, what can Descartes tell us for such, such, a, such a situation? First, uh, I think one has to assume that everything is predetermined and thus that there is no need whatsoever to go out looking for someone engaged in online dating or stuff like that. Because, in this sense, as a fatalist, um, one cannot simply. One knows that one cannot simply decides to fall in love. One cannot force it. In a sense, it's predestined, right? This is why, in one way or the other, if it happens that you fall in love, it appears to you as an absolute necessity. I had to meet him. I had to meet her, or whatsoever. Right? I mean, it, at least once, I think. Okay, so this means it's a preparation for an utterly contingent encounter, and this utterly contingent encounter can produce a kind of necessity of its own. This is why it's not only right, the necessity of contingency that needs to be embraced, but also the contingency of necessity. This is why one assumes that people, uh, in the sense, uh, can, be, can assume that they're meant for each other. Descartes is a fatalist because he defends the need for thinking both, the fundamental necessity of contingency, that is, I'm only free if something contingently happens to me that forces me to be free and that forces me to think. So freedom is something that happens, and that is. And the fundamental contingency of necessity, that is, if something happens to me, I assume it as my destiny. I assume it as something uh, which I follow necessarily. It's very close, uh, I think, to what uh, in psychoanalysis, I don't know if you would agree, um, is um, 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 uh, Freud calls Dino uh, Rosenbaum, the choice of neurosis. I mean, it's not something that you decide, right? I mean, um, as you never decide to fall in love, either you fall in, have fallen in love and then you're in love or you're not in love. I mean, it's not the moment where you think, well, uh, how much money does she earn? Um, she's a bit too tall or something like that, right? I mean, you don't do it like this. Okay, maybe, and to end, uh, you can see why fatalism, this is my fourth point, necessarily has a certain comic form, because its basic principle and action is the following, namely that there is no there is. I think this is a version of a Hegelian speculative sentence. And one reason why, for example, Slavoj has done a lot uh, of work on that, why Hegel, to, to defend this insight, uh, even goes as far as defending the necessity of war, war in history, or... Uh, just like take the perspective of the science of logic, which is depicts the cre uh, God's thought before the creation of the world. So there is no there is, or in a longer version, the worst always already happened, and thus it's, it somehow seems impossible to continue as one did before. To now truly end, I want to quote uh, just like uh, a wonderfully fatalistic uh, line by Samuel Beckett. Uh, at one point he comes up with a, I think, quite comic description of a problem. I quote, I see nothing. It's because there is nothing, or it's because I have no eyes, or both. That makes three possibilities to choose from. 
I mean, just think of Buridan's ash, right? I mean, there's a, that's like a nice Beckettian twist on that. Sometimes I think, and this, this is the main uh, uh, argument of the book, sometimes it's important to see the minif minimal difference by means of which a third option appears. Sometimes the problem does, I think, not lie as one can learn from the uh, rationalist tradition in not being able to solve the problem, but in seeing that the problem is what we perceive as a problem, which blinds us for our own involvement in it. I think the same holds for freedom. So although this is only a first step, one should, I think, uh, opt for this Beckettian fatalism. Uh, there is certainly not yet, this is certainly not yet emancipation, so right, one should opt for there is nothing and we don't have any eyes. But I think it helps to avoid seeing what is not there with eyes one imagined. So I stop here. Before you take over, can I just make a short remark? Because it really touched me how my wife is a chain smoker, no? And uh, she developed once the same line about, I think the clearest case of this false choice is smoking. Uh, she read an essay where they claim that the most efficient way to make it sure that you will never stop smoking is to convince you that it's not a problem because you have the freedom of choice at any point to stop. So then why do it? I can stop whenever I want. And she even read some American analysis, interesting, where they claim, maybe, but you cannot do it. One way to make you stop smoking was, but of course you cannot ever do it. At the very beginning, when you start smoking, if some divine figure were to tell you, you have a complete freedom now, to smoke or not. But once you decide to smoke, you will never be able to stop smoking. And that would probably make the majority... Uh, no. Another thing, sorry, then immediately you do the democratic debate. Uh, you know, when you talk about this freedom, uh, I forgot his name, it's not in Wangen. One of the intelligent... Uh, Christian philosophers, the one who does analytic philosophy, I'm very sorry, forgot the name, uh, proposed a wonderful way to combine freedom and uh, predestination. It's such a simple way. He says, uh, I have to decide something now. I'm totally free to decide and it's contingent and so on. How then can be predestination? Because God is all-powerful, he's the future, and he, although my decision is totally free, he already knows in advance, because he sees the future, how I will now decide. So it's a nice way, like, God was able to predestine me, because my free decision now is retroactively already included, but I talk too much democracy, please. Okay, so democracy. So would anybody like to respond? Okay, I'd like to ask a question about the ontology of psychoanalysis. So, is it a continuance of the um, you know, Hegelian onto, uh, ontological logical project, self-development of thought? If so, what's wrong with Hegel? And if not, what's so wrong with so what? If, if so, what's wrong with the science of logic as it is? And if not, what's going on? And very connectedly, is there any way you can evaluate the correctness of a given psychoanalytic thesis? Of which thesis? Of any? Yes, is there a general criteria? And that's obviously going to hang on the question of ontology, which I asked you. Uh, 
No, that's of course a very tough question and so on. Uh, I mean, it would take too much time, but I will be. I will try to be as brief as uh, possible here. Uh, first, uh, when you ask this question, what do you mean by uh, Hegel, Bronk, and so on? It's incredible to what extent if you read Hegel closely. And I think that's the ultimate mystery of Hegel. He appears, you know, absolute knowing, I know everything, and so on. But are people aware to what extent? He's at the same time open to the future, relativizing, and so on, and so on. So often, even in logic, for example, he was constantly reworking the logic. Or the nicest example for me is, if you look, that's my eternal example, in the introduction of his uh, philosophy of history when he goes through the geography of the world and apropos of two countries America, United States and Russia he says the same thing he says and it's not so stupid when you take into account that this was written or put down in 1820s for Russia and United States he says it's too early we cannot conceptually develop it because next century will be theirs it's not so stupid to say this. So what I'm say, saying is that uh, as many intelligent readers of Hegel know, here I even agree with Brandon. Hegel is the supreme example of what you refer to now, the contingency of necessity itself. And I think Hegel is here more open than Marx, which is why a proof. For Hegel, the Marxist vision, at least in its vulgar evolutionary way, like in the famous introduction to, or for the critique of political economy, uh, for Hegel it's absolutely prohibited to do any teleology which reaches into the future. For Hegel, now it's the absolute limit. Like, we cannot make this totalitarian temptation in Marx, you know, like Marx does allow, in spite of all Lukacian relativism, Marx does allow for the option that there is a historical agent which knows where the history is going and justifies its own activity in this way. We are just fulfilling, if not necessity, a possibility opened up by history. For Hegel, this is a totally prohibited option, which means Hegel is radically contingent here. You know, in this way, very materialist contingent. I also read here all my gratitude to Pippin, who pointed out this point, which is so obvious, but do you know anybody else who made it so clearly apart from... Sorry? Yeah. Uh, when Hegel says you know, the all of Minerva, that a certain social order can be comprehended in its notional structure only when its time is past. But I think Hegel was not such a total idiot not to know that this must help also for his own philosophy of right. So I think it's total misreading of Hegel to claim his corporate state as developed in philosophy of right, it's the model. No! He gave a precise philosophical deduction of it, which means fuck off, it's grey on grey, it's... So that's my paradox, that that's the uniqueness on Hegel, that the harshest predestiny determinist, everything, but at the same time I claim the most open philosopher you can imagine. So I don't see any contradiction between claiming, yes, Hegel is the ultimate guy, but that's why I think that 
if at all we can do something like what Hegel wanted with logic today, we will have to do... It's not a question of what Hegel was trying to do at the end, you know, change the order of categories a little bit, although it would be a wonderful reading to look at some weak points, for example, one mega weak point. We all know that Hegel's failure in mathematics is his reduction of mat mathematics to just uh, uh, bad, bad, spurious infinity of quantitative thinking. But then Hegel has a problem in, uh, in how do you call it, that calculus? The, uh, mm, infinitesimal. Yeah. What the, the, the infinite calculus, there mathematics becomes qualitative. It does something that, according to Hegel, it shouldn't have done it, which is why, check it up, it's this typical Hegelian symptomal point. You have 50, 60 pages totally overblown. He is fighting with it. This is Hegel at its most beautiful, struggling with himself. So I think that, and that's the crucial point, we can relativize, overcome Hegel without historicizing him in a cheap way. You know, like Hegel was a child of his time, we see more. That's the, for Hegel, historical closure, as even Lukacs knew and those, historical closure, like we cannot step over, blah, blah, is the, 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 and in this sense, absolute knowing is a form of historical closure. It's the most radical historicization imaginable. It's a historicization which allows for no, you know, usual historicism allows the agent, the thinker, this false distance. I'm somewhere outside, I see how things are developing and so on and so on. Hegel doesn't give you that option. So again, I don't have any problem with even as a good Hegelian totally rejecting Hegel, moving over and so on and so on, like maybe we cannot do it in the same way, but I was dreaming I report on this dream in the first or second chapter, second of my, uh, I think it's staring with the negative, on how Hegel's logic should have been rewritten today that instead of that concept and so on, we should somehow distill the logical structure, all the paradoxes of these new ways of thinking, quantum physics, and so on and so on. Because it's obvious that there is, let's be frank here, in all of Hegel's logic, I don't see a place in categories where you can squeeze in something like quantum physics and so on. And there are, so again, I think for me, Hegel is not a thinker which is like a pressure total system and so on. Hegel is for me a liberating presence. And then if you are truly a Hegelian, you can discern here and there the way Hegel misses his own point. For example, you develop this, I think, nicely in your book on Rebel, Pöbel, though, how if Hegel were to be truly Hegelian. He should have seen what he otherwise knows always, that precisely this surnumerary part of no part, part which is generated by a social edifice but doesn't belong to it, that this is the point of universality. Such an element out of its place stands for, in it, the universality of the existing system comes to be. 
But Hegel, probably also for political, is afraid to draw this conclusion. It would have been too revolutionary to say that today universality is embodied in rebel, in pebble, and so on. So again, uh, that's for me, uh, I don't see a problem into going further off Kegel. I think that the most stupid, I'm even making a step further, I will stop him, sorry, by provoking you even further. You know that wonderful book, it's one of truly, few truly Hegelian essayists today. Pierre Bayard, the French guy, who, among other things, wrote a wonderful book, it's translated into English, called uh, How to Talk About Books That You Haven't Read. And it proves in such a wonderful way, it's not a joke, but it's a serious joke. For example, he goes through, through, I think, through Joyce or whom, and proves that he contacted them that the best readings of Joyce are those by guys who privately admit to you that they haven't read all of it. And if this is true for someone, it's for Hegel. People who really know all of Hegel, they get this boring academic stuff. But look at Kozhev. Maybe he read all of it, but it's such a one-sided reductionist reading, Kozhev's lectures on Hegel. And this would be, for me, a true Hegelian approach. Not this, you have to know it all. Not isolate part. The mystery of Hegel's logic is not this pseudo-dialectic one to know a phenomenon, you have to know all the totality. No, the truth is always partial. You know, like Brecht says in a wonderful way that conceptual analysis should deal like fighting criminals. It is much easier to kill an enemy if you if you catch it alone, you know, like that you should isolate it. So I'm sorry, I know I didn't answer you, but I think it's crucial to answer you properly. I'm now just giving you a transcendental prolegomena for a future answer to your question. No, it's to get rid of this total Hegel image, the guy who somehow knew it all or whatever. Okay, sorry. So we've got one there. And, then and the, 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 the guy there. Sorry, I have a question for uh, to me? Yes. yes. I think I'm loud enough, but maybe not. Yes. Um, Graciously, we allow you to ask a question even if you are a woman. <laughs> well, thank you, kind sir. So, I'm um, so kind. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Uh, anyway, um, I wanted yes. to ask uh, I Frank. Frank, thank you. What should I call you? Uh, two questions. Uh, one, what kind of politics or political projects stems from fatalism in terms of, uh, you know, kind of getting us away from this tyranny of pseudo choice? And I'm wondering if that connects to what Dr. Zizek or Professor so, Zizek said yesterday. What did I do to you that you humiliate me so much? What do you want to do? Dr. Zizek. Who is we're not on an intimate thing. You never, you haven't said, please call me Slavoj. So you know, I was raised. No, I will not say please call me Slavoj. I will say fuck off you if you don't call me okay, Slavoj. Okay. It is clear enough. Okay, okay, okay. Slavoj. Okay. <laughs> I said, pardon the American accent. Yeah. Uh, said yesterday about if pressed for what kind of uh, political uh, solution he thinks would be kind of a, some sort of uh, socialist uh, bureaucracy that just kind of functions in the background, takes care of all these time-consuming, overburdening uh, choices, etc. So I'm just wondering if there's a connection there for you, or if, if that's, in, that's in the book, I haven't read all of it. Um, and second of all, um, I'm wondering, it seems from what you said that you were talking about in terms of the freedom as capacity, 
Uh, I'm wondering if you also addressed kind of the, the kind of modern twist on that that comes from Amartya Sen and Martha Nesbaum. They kind of branch that out to capabilities and functionings, and they, there's all these different lists about which list is uh, appropriate for development is freedom, etc. And I'm wondering if you have anything to uh, to say about that, because especially Sen is kind of the darling, right? Tony Blair invited him to make a, uh, something, and also the UN Development Goals are kind of, they say, based on his thought of expanding what development is. Amartya Sen. Amartya Sen, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's very much kind of the darling. But isn't Martha Nussbaum the great Aristotelian also? I would have to ask the philosophers that, yes, because I'm no, a self-taught no, 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 philosopher. No, no, I impute it on them, but she is usually <laughs> considered as... This is this, as you pointed out correctly, new return of Aristotelianism. You know, like, not abstract thinking, but organic tendencies, capacities, sorry. Let, let Frank talk, please. Sorry? Let Frank talk. Why? I'm not a filthy liberal. Why should I? <laughs> yeah, but I invited him to exert my right to terrorize. Okay, um, okay first answer. Just like there is no political program or agenda. It's quite, I mean, I, I get asked that frequently, actually. Um, I understand why. But I think, for example, that, that Dupuis has a good position on that. I mean... Because he makes it very concrete what it means mm -hmm. to say something about what he calls enlightened doomsaying, right? I mean, uh, understanding that the way uh, people treat ecological or economic catastrophes is the catastrophe, accepting that this is the catastrophe will change something, right? And somehow bring up, a bit, because his, his version of enlightened doomsaying means that if we still consider the possibilities that we see as a given... To be the only ones left, everything is already lost. So one needs to, let's put it like that, change the transcendental framework. So I'm not making a normative claim in, in this super strong what will follow from that, because then I think one needs to discuss that pretty much con concretely, also the role of bureaucracy or whatever this may may mean. And the other, the other answer, I, I would agree with Slava, in, in a sense... Um, no, I didn't allow you for you and Dr. Zizek. Oh, yeah, okay, so, sorry. Um, so what uh, Professor Dr. Zizek said, um, I agree with, with his authority um, and uh, wiseness that he's sharing so kind with, kindly with us. Um, because I think it doesn't change much. The, the standard answer of an Aristotelian to that kind of criticism is you misunderstand what we mean by capacity. You think, right, we have a catalog or register mm -hmm. in, our, in us, and then is, freedom is either one of the capacities or the meta-meta-capacity, which allows for actualizing whatever capacity, right, eating, going to the toilet, mm -hmm. whatever, talking. But I think this is... This, uh, and they, they, then, they, then they basically shift it by saying, no, no, freedom is the way in which we um, determine or speak about what it means to realize a capacity. Right? It's a performative, pragmatist model. But I think this doesn't change much unless you think that there are acts that change the very form of what an action means. Yeah, yeah. Right? Because they yeah, yeah. transcendentalize the, the very form of... You, you find that in inferentialism, and I mm -hmm. think the modern pragmatists, they transcendentalize, they usually speak of a space of reasons. And surprisingly, there is no exit and no entry door I mean which generates quite quite profound problems right I mean they have to give very sp speculative to say the least accounts of how 
just like because people enter, right? I mean, a one-year-old is not a fully and uh, normative creature, and then they have to come up with sub-explanations when the precise entry point is, when do people know how to make normative moves, and, and stuff like that. So I think this doesn't really solve the problem. No, but just very brief, not made me. Just another point in your anti-Aristotelian to confirm it. Pippin has one wonderful point, I hope you will agree with it, where he says that that's the problem with that false materialist reversal of Hegel in Feuerbach and Young Marx. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, these economico-philosophical manuscripts mm -hmm. are an ultra-Aristotelian text. Mm -hmm. Marx all the time, in a very uh, sense, speaks about uh, these uh, essential possibilities, essential abilities, potentials of being human. And I think that with his mature return to Hegel, critique of political economy, mm -hmm. totally he steps out of this. Young mm -hmm. Marx Aristotelianism. Mm -hmm. Sorry, yeah. ich habe gesprochen. <laughs> <laughs> And there was the gentleman. Uh, I gave him the microphone, sorry, I took over. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> women took over. <laughs> so yesterday, I think we established that there is a gap between philosophy and psychoanalysis. Yeah, and we go tomorrow and do it more in detail. Oh, stop. Yeah, so yes, we established it. So yeah. my question is, is, is the gap there to be bridged, or is it there for a reason? Uh, no, I, we didn't establish this the way I would, maybe in an unfair way, because I maybe relatively know what I wanted to say, but didn't. I would say what we established is that there is a radical gap, even thematized by intelligent philosophers up to Heidegger, Within philosophy itself, there is the true gap between what philosophy can do its hidden, not in Aristotelian sense, the space it, the space it opens, potential, and what it actually becomes. It is as if, it's a very beautiful formulation, I don't know where I found it, all of philosophy is fighting, trying to control, to contain the devil that it, philosophy itself, unleashed in its founding gesture. Philosophy is something crazy, radical. It's always, as mm. but you quoted, of course, Socrates corrupting the youth and so on. There is a radical negative dimension, and the gap is there. And I think the greatness of Lacan is this. His reference to philosophy, he makes an alliance to what philosophy, its own founding gesture that philosophy tries to unleash. And what is this founding gesture? When Lacan, when he attacks philosophy, he gets very simplistic. He likes to say that philosophy is this Weltanschauung, worldview, the view of one. No, look what I improvised one hour ago in a confused way about Kant. Kant's whole point is that there is antinomy, we are unable, that there is a fundamental gap, no unity, self-impossibility, and so on and so on. So again, the lesson of psychoanalysis, I think, is that to, intro, to bring out a gap in philosophy itself. There are different names for this gap. And Heideggerian would have said uh, forgetting obliteration of ontological di uh, difference or whatever you want. I think, again, that the gap is there. And then, uh, it, the, and then there was a kind of a forgetfulness on both sides. Philosophy is all the time obliterating its own founding gesture. At the same time, of course, 
psychoanalysis, one big regression. And the genius of Lacan is that he got it, in spite of all his uh, anti-philosophical posturing, that the only way to bring out the most radical dimension of Freudian psychoanalysis is through reference to philosophy. Every, all philosophers are needed. When, Kant, when, when Lacan talks about repetition, it's Kierkegaard. When Lacan talks about uh, surplus, well, uh, surplus enjoyment, it's Marx, and so on, and so on, and so on. It's a much more intricate relationship. So it's not just a gap, but it's, there is a gap, but a redoubled gap, a gap in philosophy and a gap in the sense of self-obliteration in psychoanalysis itself. That's all I can not to take too much time. There was a lady there maybe wanting to fight back. Yes, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's great, thank you very much. Um, th this is very thought-provoking, it's also really enjoyable. Um, when you start to talk like this, it means you are sharpening your knife behind <laughs> your back, so bring out your knife. <laughs> Okay, I'd like to go back to something you said very early yesterday. Um, things are so bad, all that is left to us is theory. Is to? Is theory. Theory is the only thing. That's what I thought I heard you say. Yeah, but all Marxists know yeah. this. Okay. First, first war, Hegel started to read Hegel's law. Sorry, okay, Lenin. Can I, can yeah. I get closer to the knife? Sorry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love theory. I'm a, a transdisciplinary mongrel. I like to collect theories. I use them like those lenses in the optician. Yes. To see what gives you the best view mm. in a particular situation mm. with a particular perspective. I like to swing up and down the scaffolding mm. of fractals between society mm. and conscious and so on. However, listening to you both this afternoon, I'm a little bit reminded of Josh Cohen's book on celebrity culture and the insatiable mm. pursuit of the unknowable. And I'd just like to hear what you might, how you might respond to the suggestion um, that the pursuit of the correct interpretation of theory can seem a little bit claustrophobic. And I'm thinking of a, some misspent time in the library at the Institute of Psychoanalysis. Isn't it a little bit like anal masturbation sometimes? What, what does it mean? I, 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 you know, there is a cliche about women that they cannot think in abstract terms. Well, I'm a woman here, and when you say anal masturbation, I try to represent it. Like, do you mean like that you missed it, or like, uh, what did you mean by anal masturbation? Okay, but. No, no, you're the psychoanalyst. Oh, yeah, okay. I was, I was no, reading I'm not. Library. I'm not a psychoanalyst practice. First. A psychoanalyst is supposed to listen patiently to other people. Can you for a second imagine me of being a psychoanalyst? Sorry, finish, I'm sorry. You might have to pay the clients, it's true. Yeah. No, but uh, you know what's my problem with what you are saying? That it fits so perfectly, a little bit too perfectly. That's my fear. The... Uh, predominant ethos of today's, enough of this abstract theory, we have real problems and so on. I am not afraid of get. I think that if you, even if you look at the history of philosophy or science, did not all the most productive discoveries and so on emerge precisely out of some kind of anal masturbation, I'm ready to claim. It was never, now we are doing something important which serves the goal. What is, this is even a usual dismissal of Hegel. 
That's why I like Hegel. When Marx said one of the greatest stupidities in the world, if you take Marx literally. You know when he says philosophers have interpreted the world, the point is to change it. Well, why don't we ask, I follow here my friend Laden Dolar, but who are these stupid philosophers who wanted just to interpret the world? None of them. Plato, you remember, went to Syracuse to the tyrant. Aristotle, all of them wanted some change. There is, from what I know, only one philosopher who really wanted just to interpret it, Hegel. And he triggered the greatest change through the ego. So I'm not afraid of this uh, saying anal masturbation. Perfect. Why not? Because it also means you masturbate with yourself, you keep at a distance from social pressure and so on. I'm not afraid of this. I think that if anything... We are not ready today, what it means in theory, not in practice, it's too horrible for me to imagine it, to do a little bit of theoretical anal masturbation. What's the problem? I don't see the problem. The most beautiful, I am so classical metaphysic here, is there something more beautiful, except some private sexual things, I will not go into them, is there anything more beautiful than really swim into intelligent philosophical thought, discover a new notion, make it? I cannot imagine, except the above-mentioned domain, <laughs> I cannot imagine anything more beautiful than this. So I know you were more refined, we would have to know. I know, okay, please take this as a compliment. I know that even if you are blonde, you are not stupid. No, I know that. I know that there was much more in what, but unfortunately we... Okay. Yes, yeah, so there was another lady... Okay, just one, one more. Back there. Yeah. Thank you. Simple question. What do you make of Jacqueline Millet's notion of ordinary psychosis? First, it's not Jacqueline Millet's, from what I know, it's, uh, it's already, already Lacan says that the ordinary person, the same ordinary person has a psychotic structure and so on and so on. But there is, I cannot answer you, I will just again, prolegomena for a future answer. You know, uh, I often like this Miller's paradoxes. For example, the way I developed the last time I was here, I found wonderful his provocation, you know, this eternal search for what is at the level of four discourses capitalism. And his idea that capitalism is precisely a specific twist to the analyst discourse, you know. Mm -hmm. So not simply analysts are always good guys. But uh, you know what I'm afraid of here? Are you acquainted with this late... Miller in the last years, his theory that now we have that reality is moving, late capitalism outside the old Lacanian real into this pure radical real out of the law and so on and so on. I think he, he buys too much the self-ideology of capitalism itself. If you look closely at how capitalism functions, it appears as this Deleuzean machine, real, desiring, assemblage, outside all law, but there are hard laws determining it, there is a fixed structure beneath. Also, what I find so problematic in Miller here is that, my God, he should have known. It is as if, I'm sorry to say this, as if, as if Lacan 
as if as if he didn't read Lacan. Lacan's whole point is that, and Lacan says this emphatically. For example, debating Kant, Lacan says, "My real has nothing to do with this Kantian thing in itself, some entity, pure real, out of law." Lac uh, Lacanian real is a kind of a purely formal obstacle, impossibility, and so on. Real is not outside symbolic. Real is an internal obstacle, twist, whatever, within the symbolic itself. And this brings us back also to feminine sexuality. For Lacan, it's often misread. Feminine sexuality, the formula doesn't mean women are partially within the symbolic order, but haha, we are not totally in, we are a little bit out, we have that stupid uh, uh, jouissance feminine. No, Lacan says women are also more fully within the symbolic than men. Because, you know, the other part of non-all is no exception. Women are non-all because there is nothing in a woman which is not within the symbolic order. So it is as if there is something, I mean, Miller still, I confess it, she is basically a genius. She is my introduction to Lacan. But it's as if he is losing nerves in the last years. My idea is, and I say this with all respect, look at his edition of Lacan's seminars. Till some ten years ago, a little bit more, he followed Lacan's line, which was, Seminars should be edited as if they are contemporary books. None of those explanatory notes and so on. Then all of a sudden, I think with Joyce, Santom, uh, uh, Santom Joyce, she totally changed sides and all of a sudden you have 100 pages of afterward by Miller where he goes into this for me rather tasteless, uh, tasteless, uh, it's like, like, like National Geo no National Geographic, National Enquirer, those, you know, like, oh, uh, Philippe, Lacan asked me, is Philippe Soler there? Yes, he was there, you know, reporting all these rumors about and so on. Also, Miller, I know, because I was partially the victim there. Up to a certain point, he was accusing me of, you know, too much popular culture and so on, strict logic. But then, all of a sudden, he went over me much further. Look at his comments that he publishes in, in Le Poing and in Figaro sometimes. Like the lowest was, I think, his comment on Sarah Palin. He proclaimed she will squash Obama, that's the new post-feminist woman. She was absolutely... I mean, he's making such... I think that he's a sad example of what maybe holds even for Lacan that, and maybe it holds also for me, that it's not always that when a thinker is at the end of his path that you get some final wisdom, you know, trying to catch the last words. No, there can be a high point before and then you go down. And I think the tragedy of the very last Lacan was that somewhere around Seminar 20, a year before, after, I think this is his high point. He there formulated a certain deadlock of his thought. And then I think all those uh, knots and so on, these are uh, Borromea knot and so on, these are desperate attempts to find a way out. And if you really read closely those very late Lacan seminars, which are somehow tragically funny, like he tells a couple of sentences, some of them are an open admission of total defeat. 
And the same goes for many philosophers. For example, my example, Schelling. I think it's the middle Schelling, Freiheitsschrift and Weltalter, which is the real, and then it's just a regression and so on. I think that sometimes late the last works of thinkers are the most productive, ingenious, but sometimes they are, they are simply a regression. And what I am afraid, but he is not yet so old, although he is like me, it means he is not young, no, that what if M Miller went on the same path again? Miller defines the real in Lacan as we pass from the real of nature, external real submitted, subjected to natural laws, to this totally outlaw, chaotic, postmodern, real capitalism and so on, quantum physics. But what is missing in between for me is simply what is so great about Lacanian real. It's not the external stable reality, but it's also not this totally chaotic or loi, outlaw, but it's precisely just an immanent obstacle, totally virtual. Like sexual difference as real. In, it doesn't exist. It's just a point of reference, purely virtual, for all the effects. It exists through its distorted effects. That's the ultimate Lacanian real. And it's as if this is, this is, uh, this is disappearing. It's very sad. It's very sad. Because you know why? Because I think that it's because of this that Okay, I don't want now to speak so that you will crucify me then, but I still believe Lacanian theory has tremendous potentials, not just in clinic, but for social analysis and so on, whatever. And uh, it's not, to put it very naively, its potentials are not fully used and so on. It's very setting because, again, I admit it, in spite of all my misunderstanding with Miller, I say it brutally. Without Miller, I would simply not be in Lacan. I would not ever understand Lacan. Thank you. Okay, so I think we'll leave it there some more tomorrow.